Scott Dome Building. What you guys do is architectural building, building the biggest, baddest homes around town at scale and really quickly. That's that's what I hear, right? Is that does that sum it up? Uh, yeah, it's not not exactly. That's not written on the hoarding. Um, biggest, baddest buildings in town, but the idea of Dome was. Um, I worked with my um, business partner Andrew in commercial construction, um, and we uh, enjoyed commercial construction. But Andrew had this sort of uh, side business dome uh, that he started at sort of early two thousands, and it was just a bit of a hobby horse of his because he was a carpenter working in commercial construction. But his real passion is in high end carpentry, joinery building nice things which commercial doesn't always offer so he just had this thing kicking around on the side and we worked for together for a couple of years at ADCO and we started talking about possibly doing something ourselves mm. um and he really wanted to do it in domestic and I didn't know much about it all I knew was that we would drive past sites on St George's Road Turak that looked like they were worth millions and they'd be shut for two months at a time you know, just temp fencing, flapping around, um, you know, and just, just looked like a bit of a mess and just looked like an, an industry that could use some of the efficiencies and professionalism of a commercial company, but with the craftsmanship and, and the backing of uh, building principles because it's in high-end homes, mm-hmm. it just seemed like there was a niche there where it, the market wasn't getting necessarily served like we think it should have been for what the people that are you know, doing these big grand homes, what they're probably expecting. So jumped in, started very small, um, sort of through the inner north, through Fitzroy, very humble, Fitzroy, Clifton Hill, single front terraces. How many years ago was this? This was, it got serious in about 2012. Okay. um, Where I was running it out of the front of a share house in around the corner in Richmond here. Mm. So serious for me. Mm. I was probably the only person that was super serious too, but... Soon as we, soon as I jumped on it full time and leaving the commercial industry, it was, it was really serious. Um, but we're just doing one or two houses at a time, single front Victorians, keyhole surgery style, like you're building through the front door. And I think that sort of laid the foundations for us because I think that's the most complex type of construction. Mm-hmm. That no access, city of Yarra Council, no dirt on the footpath. You know, getting parking fines, nowhere to park, nowhere to put anything. Um, adding basements to adding basements to Victorian <laughs> cottages, um, you know, joiners like yourself bringing full three meter high kitchens through through doors that aren't even that high. So, um, sort of cutting our teeth in that market and having to make it stack up financially and time wise, we were we were straight away bringing that sort of commercial programming mindset. We were straight away 40 percent quicker than everyone. We were like whenever we tended, we were told you're only doing this in five, six months, everyone else is a year, how are you doing it? I was sort of like, oh, I was just going to work every day and being organised and writing programs and having good subbies. And then that just scaled, just that simple idea of being on time, um, offering good value, being professional, and then on top of it, the product always had to be good quality. We found that's just resonated and scaled and actually is now more appreciated the more high-end you go, the bigger the project um, because it's challenging. Yeah, and there's and there's less and less um, saturation and competition as the scale gets bigger. 
So now, you know, when you're trying to tender a single front Victorian in Clifton Hill, there's 30 builders in the suburb that could tender it and all put forward the same portfolio and you've really got to try and – you've got to be cheap and fast and and professional um, to, to sort of stand out in that crowd. And then we found as we've gotten on to bigger projects now um, – we're getting on tender lists where we're now seeing the same builders all the time. And it's the, the guys that have been around for 20 years um, who, you know, so you, you, the field the field is shortened, uh, which actually makes sort of winning work easier. And then you can start more concentrating on really re- re- honing the model, refining our, mm-hmm. refining our systems, getting better every year because we're not having to keep dropping our price, you know, really compete like we used to. It was pretty ruthless for the first five or six years. Yeah. Um, yeah. My question is commercial construction principles and management systems. How do you apply that to smaller uh, projects, but, are, but really detailed ones like the ones you do? So uh, I almost feel like it's easier in commercial with the level of scale or with the minimal complexity that you can create these systems and, and create these processes that that are quite logical and make a lot of sense. But in when you're doing a you know a big reno with an underground basement with so many details, thousands and thousands of details across multiple trade packages, across multiple sets of shop drawings, how do you create systems for that? Is it a HR problem? It's a. I think what we realised really early, and it was probably due to my lack of um, skills. So my background is through project management, not through trade. Whereas Same. most of our business uh you know trade craftsmen that we're teaching them how to be site managers Um, first teaching them carpenters how to be leading hands then teaching them how to be foreman site managers and then eventually trying to get them through to be construction managers and manage multiple site managers and stuff and that transition i think is the most difficult in construction um but i think it was through me understanding and andrew and andrew's background as well understanding the principles of project management um and but not having the on-site not not necessarily having a heap of technical available resources available for us full-time so we realized that we you have to split up the workload you not we don't have like a hero in our business that knows everything um we or andrew would say it was him but you know that's just a bit of a joke but he would but we so our site managers um we we realized we had to take all of the real management burden off them to make them just focus on the detail so we'll write the programs, we'll organise the subcontractors, we'll procure everything in the office, just build everything in the right spot, follow the drawings and hit all the details. And then once we wanted them to start doing that, because they were carpenters, we had to get them off the tools. So it's I think it's understanding in construction, really respecting procurement. So it's much easier for me to discuss difficult joinery details with you when we're digging a hole in the ground when we've got six months before we need you on site than the week before I need you to be there. And I think some people don't respect procurement in that way. They sort of go, okay, we've poured a slab. Now, where's the steel or what? Are, where's our carpenters? Where, from our point of view, once we've signed someone up, we're procuring fixtures, tiles, joinery contractors, steel. We're procuring that in the first month or two. Um, with a loyal subcontractor base who understand what we're expecting of them, but we give the appropriate amount of time 
because everyone's procured so up front uh, so early we give the, we give respect to how much detail there is to work out and we need time with say people like yourself in joinery mm. to, to f- let's figure it out before we start shop drawing let's talk about it meet and not then rush you into some thing so you can have your own systems and your own business where you slot us in give it the time and then that, and then the outcome that that spits out a quality outcome when everyone's got time to apply their resources properly to it right so if we pivot the conversation a little bit and we're trying to provide some value to subcontractors. So you, you identified these things that you needed to do to become a more successful construction business, uh, a more successful builder. What are some of those things that you see for subcontractors, some opportunities in the market that, that we need to capitalise on? I think it's with subcontractors. It's, it's hard because we only... Have, we, we have a, a pretty small group of subbies that we're very loyal to. Um, some of them have come up with us, from my point of view, from, from, day, from day one and grown their business with ours. But I can imagine it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the reliability that sort of pick up the phone, the, the yes to, to most questions um, and sticking with this. All we have, all, all my experience I only have is with our own business. And that's with a really respectful two-way relationship where I've never gone on site and told a subby how to do something or this is how to apply your trade. You know, we're, I'm, we're question askers, listeners. Um, how can we get through it? What can we do for you? Um, and brought them along that way. So, but I, but, but what I, from what I hear from them, from their experience with other builders, is they seem to work for a lot and then 80% of their work ends up being for a very few so they get three or four builders that are um, very reliable or, you know, that they can work with and stick with that. So I think just being extremely reliable, do what you say you're going to do, never never fight with someone on quality. So don't, you know, make excuses. What I find sometimes is with some subcontractors, they're great tradesmen who once they figure out that they could do this, they want to work for themselves. If they're a really good tradesmen, they usually get busy really quickly. So then they've got to put people on. And I feel like that transition for subcontractors from I do everything myself, so the quality's always there, to I've got to get off the tools, I want to run a business and you know support my family. That transition of how do I get that quality out of people that aren't as good as me at my trade, um, that seems like the, the major transition that they, they have. So... Sort of getting someone to help you out with business and running things like you, like you're obviously running your business, but you're probably not sitting there uh, screwing boxes together in the in the workshop. Um, investing in someone to help you with your business if you're a really good tradesman that feels like they need to be on site to ensure the quality um, of something, or hire, spending the money and hiring good people to implement your vision and knowing that for the first three or four years, you're not going to make what you were making when you're on the tools. You know, you're not going to take home those big pay packets that some of them can do when they're doing really well at their trade. So I think it's just investment either way. You either invest in business support or you invest in really good craftsmen in your business and you've got to respect both sides of it. I think it's probably the main thing. Yeah, I think for a lot of guys on the tools, it's hard to see the value proposition of, say, implementing systems or having someone manage your business. I think that that's something that's quite difficult to grasp, especially when... Um, the ROI on that, like you said, probably doesn't play out for the first three, four years. And that's with good execution. So that's something that I think is hard to apply. And the trust, I think. Like whenever you have – I feel like the best businesses 
that I am aware of have business partners and it's you've got to find the right person. Like that is such a hard thing. Like the fact that Andrew and I um, get along the way we do and it's, and it's been successful, like it's pure fluke. Like we just barrack for the same football team, both love sport, both have the same principles and have um, skill sets that um, help each other, you know, that we cover each other off and round each other out. That's that's luck. You know, we didn't go out searching for – I didn't go out searching for, for Andrew and he didn't do the same for me. So if you're a contractor who um, hasn't – say if you're a carpentry firm and you've come up working for someone else and you haven't met someone along the way that balances you out, to go out on your own and build something special and then realise to expand it you need a partner – that's you, you're now you've now got this egg that you really care about to share it and, and offer that to someone um, to, and trust them and have it work out. You know it's really difficult. Yeah. An industry like ours where everyone's pulling you in different directions and you might be on site working twelve hours a day and get back and it feels like the guy doing the paperwork in the office hasn't lifted a finger because you haven't seen anything they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, that that can cause tension as well. So. I, th- I do see it's hard, and that's why you hear about so many people that go out, try, doesn't necessarily work out, but you would sort of just say to them, like, don't give up. Like, if, if, you just, if it didn't work out well with that person, keep going, because I feel like once you've done it, once you've um, built, built something that um, can, can maintain itself and things like that, the rewards are, are sort of endless when you go to work. You know, it's, it's tough and it's stressful and all those kind of things, but... But sort of having that nagging away in the back of your head that oh, I could have, you know, yeah. and I, you know, I, but I just didn't even crack. I didn't trust anyone. Um, I couldn't find anyone to do it with me. I feel like that's a bigger, that's a bigger regret or a bigger nag than oh, my business partner isn't pulling their weight in the office or something like that. I I totally agree with you, but I think that only applies if you have that right DNA type. You know, I, I think, I think especially in this day and age, doing your own business is so cool. I think people can fall into that trap and not be self-aware and realise that they're better off just making 110 grand as a gun architectural carpenter for Dome. You know what I mean? Not that I know how much your architectural carpenters make, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> as opposed to going out on, on, you know, on their own. And, you know, you, you know, you were speaking to subbies on the tools and then not knowing, you know, perhaps how to run the business. I'm in that situation where I'm, I'm sort of in that opposite field. I'm not a cabinet maker. I don't have a trade-based background. I studied construction management at school. I wanted to be a builder as well, and then I fell in love with architectural joinery. You know, so for me, I have that reverse of that problem where I need really, really good tradesmen to support my vision and to work together to create. You know, and it's it's hard. You know, when you don't know how to do the work yourself, um, it creates it creates significant vulnerabilities, and. But the blessing to that is you're forced to create systems. You're forced to work on the business and create something with a little more scale and that's a little more sustainable. Yeah, it is. That's that's sort of what I was saying before is there's a lot of builders, especially out there, who, like we said, when I said we've got no heroes, they sort of are the hero. They're the carpenter that became a builder, builder that's now grown and has a good reputation but they sort of end up being the log, the, you know, the, the 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 pinch point of every bit of quality assurance in their business. You know, they have to go see the frame before the frame inspection because they don't want to invest in really good site managers or or a good construction manager, and or they have to order all the stuff themselves because they don't trust administration and procurement people to come into their office and you know that kind of stuff. And 
the 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 sort of I think for me it was as soon as I got into contraction it was on my first day I realized shit I know nothing you know I I know nothing about this and I'd speak to someone like my business partner Andrew at work coming out of uni and it seemed like I could have a hundred years and I'll never know I'll never know what he knew and I got the advice of another CA who'd been there for about 18 months who just said don't worry not everyone's like him you don't you don't need to you know he's, he's a carpenter who's done engineering who's got a degree who's been a commercial project manager for 15 years and done and so you know don't worry about that just one day at a time learn a bit more and I it was sort of straight away in that um understanding you know nothing and being comfortable with it but still seeing your bit to add value is oh, well these guys they haven't got any project management systems here they don't know who, who's who's leading it, who's organising it, who's bringing it all together. Um, playing that sort of director in a movie role, um, you know, they're not actors. They're not they're not the talent. Um, and it's the same with us. The talent is the the guy doing the work on site, um, but he needs your support. So finding being comfortable in your niche that you're just this small part of this bigger machine, um, and and then really respecting those that come. So every day I go to work and often learn something new from a tradesman who's twice my age, um, you know, been doing his trade for 30, 40 years, and just walk past them, even if introduce myself, ask them what they're doing. And now that we're doing such high-end work, especially in, like, restoration and 100-year-old sort of materials, and you've got guys coming out of Ireland that are specialists in it or, or from other countries or Moroccan tilers or whatever, and, you know, you, you get yourself asking them two or three questions. Most guys that are tradesmen... They, they love talking about what they do because it's the one thing that they're absolute professionals at. Um, and, you know, so they'll always tell you, oh, this is how we're doing that. And you're sort of just gathering that info and using it on the next project and stuff like that. But I think for us when, like your problem you were saying about how do I get someone technical, how do I trust someone technical, how do I do that, I think if you are parking yourself as I'm never going to be as good at you at what you're doing, so therefore you're running the show on this, once you give people that responsibility and respect, they respond. And they respond really well because then you've just created ownership for them because they're now running the technical side of your business or the technical side of that project they're working on. And we found doing it with young people. So most of our site managers start with us as carpenters. And as long as they're a good tradesman and they're neat and tidy, we feel like, and they have a good attitude, we can teach them everything else. And so, you know, we've, we, we bring them up through our system. They see how hard our other guys work. They're still, the other guys that are site managers still in their 20s and 30s, so close. You know, people can be off the tools by the time they're 25, 26 if they want to. Yeah. Giving them that responsibility and ownership of their own thing, we find you get the response that you're after. And then you, you're just the guardrails at that point. You're just stopping them from making big mistakes but trusting them on their day-to-day. So I, I led... You know, one of the first questions was, "How do you create systems for that?" and and I, and I ended that question with, "With is it just a HR problem?" So what it sounds like to me is you created a HR infrastructure to create the labor resources that you need to run the operation that you want it that you and you the way that you wanted want it to be run, and that's created that real point of difference is having the team giving ownership so you don't create those little accountability vacuums throughout the organization, and being sort of that. That CEO level, that I hate the word CEO, but like that, that like that upper management level, and and trusting your team, especially because you've created that infrastructure to empower them and enable them to run things the way that they need to be run. Yeah, we haven't we haven't hired any senior people in our firm. We hired our our first ever project manager um, in twenty twenty. 
who was just a contact through uh, through a, a company that Andrew had previously worked for, and and he sort of just uh, he heard seen, seen some hoardings and said, oh, you know, can I come across? And we we're like, oh, you know, we don't usually hire senior people, but you know, if you come in and fit into the system, then then come. And uh, and he did, and he's been great. Um, but everyone we hire is usually graduates out of uni, so just get super smart people most and a lot of a lot of our office uh, staff are international students who you know they're 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 so smart you know they're coming in here and by 22 23 they've done a double degree at melbourne uni in a second language now that is those those guys are twice as smart as i am those guys and girls and and you know like you said with you with your business often that um someone who's come to australia um for an opportunity they 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 sense that opportunity and grab it a lot firmer than say some people that have come up through trade backgrounds and stuff like that who sort of it's all been there's always demand for their service so they're you know a bit more picky with how they're going and we just find we get we get our office um a really good spread of different backgrounds and stuff in our office it's a bit of a melting pot of ideas and cultures and personality and things like that and and then we just teach them about the principles of procurement administration um which coming out of you know doing double degrees at melbourne uni and things like that they're already they've already got the intelligence to pick up anything that someone's going to teach them and then the exciting part for them is they get to learn about construction which is really fun and getting them out on site and mingling with um yeah you know 20 year experienced mm-hmm. tradesmen and things like that so that principle applies in the office so getting people from the ground up teaching them our systems our way we don't hire senior estimators we don't hire senior pms um or anything like that it's all mm-hmm from grad up like I was and then on site it's apprentice carpenter slash you know new carpenter through to site manager into construction manager um yeah and that's that 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 has got its has got its difficulties because you're training you're constantly training you're constantly telling people to 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 work harder and work above their their skill level um you're constantly bringing people up you never get into that relaxed mode of like now we've made it you know let's just all now we're all comfortable like i don't know anyone in our business who is comfortable with where they're at they're all trying to get some somewhere higher somewhere further trying to take more in and that's got its own i suppose stresses um but it creates an excitement and uh and you know everyone can see next year i'm going to be doing this i'm going to be working on a bigger house i'm going to be have this position and that enthusiasm just sort of runs through uh, so just on a bit of a lighter note, uh, which uni has the best construction management program? It's a good question. I um, it's actually funny when you sit down. I haven't down. told you what uni I went to yet, <laughs> no, so I want to hear I'll the right you. one. It's it's funny when you you in, we we've got um people from everywhere. So we've got uh, RMIT, Melbourne, Holmes Glen, uh, Deakin. But what's I don't know. You don't want to sort of pinhole anything. Yeah, you do. But uh, pigeonhole anything. But we've got. Um, uh, some guy at a at a homes Glen. I think we get the the sort of um, the people that can sort of rumble on site a bit more. That sort of you know send them down to negotiate with the trade, understand construction detail, thirst for getting out on site. Um, you know, which has a huge value in a business. You need you need them. Um, and then sort of at RMIT and Deakin seem to be that sort of or RMIT sort of that in between you know, the administration and, and a bit of on-site and then our people that come through Melbourne and uh, Deakin have been very administratively strong, um, you know, and just sort of sometimes in an interview they'll bring through 
like a project they've done in the double degree with architecture or something and they, they can all draw on CAD and and then so which is great because say in like a when we're doing stone like we we procure all our stone ourselves so in a tender we're doing our own cutting lists on CAD for a tender so we're making sure that we don't allow for too much stone we don't let a stone mason sort of hijack our number by just loading up on 50% extra of stone supply and all that kind of stuff. So we try and utilise the skills and then pair them up and have them talk to each other so that, you know, the guy from Holmes Glen is teaching what he knows about to the guy, to the guy from Mel, to the girl from Melbourne Uni about, you know, if, you, if you're worried about going out and talking to the concrete or about some defects, this is, this is the way I would do it, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the people from Melbourne Uni, they're sitting there on CAD showing showing our other guys, you know, this is how I do stone sequencing and cutting schedules and Send stuff Send the like DXF that. straight to the stonemason so they've got no excuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny because <laughs> yeah. you are – once we do get our hands dirty with – because the whole business is sort of based on let's remove the grey area from everything. So let's not let contractors, you know, sort of hijack our, our systems. Let's figure out what they do well and do it ourselves in support of them so they can concentrate on site. So mm. – Things like things like well, I was just saying that cutting lists. And most of it, or, or we we do our own steel on site. Often we do our own carpentry, it, and it's just so that the day we pour our slab, the next day the steel's up. We're not sitting there for two weeks staring at a slab waiting for steel shop drawings and all that sort of stuff. It's we just just get it to site, fabricate it, and get it up. So it's it's it, once you sort of do that in the office, it can sort of when you sign up really good tradesmen it can rub them up the wrong way when you've already done the work. You know, when you get a stone mace, you go, here's your cutting, you know, here's, here's, here's how, what slabs are doing, here's how we're doing it. You go to someone like a, you know, like a party marble or something who they've got a whole back room of people doing this, you know, and you go, no, this is what our thoughts are. And they're like, I don't care what your thoughts are. <laughs> you know, I'm doing it. So, you know, sometimes just you do get some pushback on it. I had a question and I can't remember it now. But, uh, oh, Here's my question. This is a good one. DNC. Yeah. Are you guys interested? <sighs> Coming from uh, where I suppose mainly Andrew's been in the com- sort of commercial sector, um, where it's it's you know pretty standard um, thing uh, thing a procurement strategy in in that space. I don't I don't see it. Um, at all really in the single dwelling space that we're in, uh, especially because we're doing a lot in extensions and renovations of grand period homes. But we do have design and construct elements of contracts. So we had a design and construct uh, tunnel under a mansion in Armadale um, where we've basically suspended the whole house um, above ground, dug out underneath it and created a basement underneath the house itself. Um, where the sort of, uh, you know, the client-led engineer had proposed a design that, um, you know, it was it's, it hasn't been done. There hasn't been a lot of it done in the, in, in the city, so it's fair enough. It, it just it d- didn't seem like it was going to work and the project was sort of going in a direction where it was going to take way too long um, and just be too messy and too risky. So they sort of just came to us and just sort of showed it to us and said, can we do this? Any, you know, how can you do it? Um, and we came back to them, sort of took six months off another builder's program and, and uh, implemented our own design with concrete and stuff like that with a, with a close contractor and architect uh, and engineer. And that, I think, gave us a bit of thirst for, for doing D&C structures. Um, I, I was more ref- – so the technical side of D&C, I think, makes a lot of sense. Basements, tunnels, yeah. um, 
doing things how your contractors are used to doing it, um, saving time, saving money, and hence the value proposition that you give to the client. I'm more thinking about architectural DNC as as in as in doing the architectural design as well as the construction. You've talked about how you've made your made dome a point of difference, applying commercial uh, principles. Uh, why can't we sequence things faster? Uh, creating a culture uh, isn't wouldn't creating a DNC product be at just that other point of difference? That means no one can compete with you. Uh, I don't know because I see um, architects are our complete uh, source of work. Really, when you think about, it. I mean, and and people can come to us. Uh, uh, probably twenty percent of our work is people coming to us, us recommending an architect. Mm happy to stay with them through that process, um, you know, stand alongside, offer them construction feedback and also just budgetary, like live budgetary feedback as you go through every stage in the design, which we do a lot of. But I just think that the best, the best architects and ideas out there, they're not working for builders. They're, they, to me, they are, like we, we've got the, um, you know, the, the, the pleasure of working with, you know, people like B Architecture, um, about to start a job with Pandolfini and, and there's, there's a heap of name, Placey Perkins, NTF, all these guys. I don't see the, the, the those minds, those mm. sort of, um, you know, Broderick, Eli from B Architecture, I don't see those guys working in-house at a builder. And, and the DNC builders that I'm aware of um, that are doing really nice stuff, to me, it's not as nice as the stuff that... Mm you know, the, the top architects in town are doing. I, I agree. I think the best the best DNC guys are, with all respect, doing really nice Metricon. With with all the respect in the world, that's the feel I get. Well, they need to – there is – you just kind of let a builder in the room, I don't think, when you're really designing a house. So I'm, I'm currently doing a design for my place um, and – the last thing I would want to be doing is being really in charge of that uh, or sort of negating that or, or anything like that. It's like, and I go away to a design, I know what it's going to cost once I see it. Mm. And if I want it, I'll have it. But it's, and if I can't afford it, I can't afford it. So, that, so that's, to me, that's a really easy thing. I think a lot of people get caught up in the, I love the design and then there's hope it's going to be, it's going to be the right price and things like that. But mm. I just think that you can't, the best, yeah, the best design minds, they're not working for builders. And I'm just not sure if you want to build a, um, curtailing that but th there definitely is a market i think it's in that mid to high end market those sort of design and construct builders i get i get the product and i get the people that go i just want an all-in-one thing because it can be daunting when you first go to an architect and then they introduce you to three builders and who's managing this project at the moment so my arc because i don't think architects are very good project managers i just think Ooh. and i can say it i can say it because i think like what i've just said i think that their their position is to be designers and they're creatives and they're so good at it and I don't have a creative bone in my body so I can I, I respect what they do so much but you can just see um, by the time people have come to us they're often slightly frustrated because all the glitzy glossy architecture design 3D renders was quite early on and now a year's worth of planning a bunch of admin and costs going over. By what do you mean you can't do a 12 mil timber floating shelf? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, it's, and they sort of get to us yeah. and everyone's just a bit tired, you know, through the planning process mm -hmm. and, and, you know, figuring out costs and stuff like that. And, and they're, um, 
and and then sort of we come in and really carry that um, project management load. As soon as we're involved, you know, we'll we'll run the project. We'll 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 deal with all the admin and all the boring stuff that the architects don't necessarily like doing as much. But yeah, I think if you if you, the one stop shop has its limits in in regards to the top yeah. end. Well, my so plot joinery came out of a failed business idea called plot project management, which was the idea of doing construction of uh, project management for architects, so doing the CA work for them. Right. Okay. Because I, I was I was speaking with our and and it failed. I didn't get a single client. But um, but talking to architects, the idea sort of was they love the product so much and they want to do justice to the product and create the best possible version of their product that even though the project management is saying that they're not necessarily great at and it's something that takes so much time, is so emotionally consuming and is so low margin, they're still going to do it because that's the only way that they think they can see what they can see their vision come to life. So when they go to a builder like you guys who has a proven track record of delivering and hitting those details, maybe it puts them at ease as well that they don't need to worry too much about that. That's, I think for us, it's the whole business model for us is let architects stick to do what they're so good at, which is designing homes and, and, and seeing something through to the end um, and, and, and carry the project management and administrative burden um, with, with our resources in the office and, and that's what gets the best outcome. And even we haven't worked for a client-side PM firm yet, mm-hmm. um, but even they... In, in our industry, in commercial, absolutely makes sense. But in the single dwelling where, you, where, the, where the outcome for the project is just I want the most beautiful thing ever to live in, to live in for the next 20 years, I think if you have a great architect and a great builder you've, and, and all the others re- consultants, that's all the ingredients you need. If you throw a project manager in with um, two companies that can manage their own relationship and themselves... Sometimes I feel like that sort of client side PM role, they can be looking for things to prove their worth on. Justifying their yeah. worth, yeah. And and sometimes I feel like when architects are, um, you know, in the same position where things are just going so well and the client's sort of worrying about, oh, this extra few percent that I've paid to have you manage my builder, my builder's managing himself, sort of what are you, what are you guys doing for this? So then sometimes we get this sort of, you know, these problems that sometimes can come out of just needing to show that, where our, their presence um, and it never happens after we've done more than one job with them because there's a comfort level in um, their real job is to find you the best builder in town for the right number who's perfect for your project to me that should be the end of their responsibilities to the client once you've got the right builder um, so yeah the, the the client side pm stuff um, mass you know entering into our market the single dwelling market for me it's it's a slight worry um, because yeah, I think they've got to they've got to justify themselves, and sometimes when there's nothing to justify, maybe you know can get created to to sort of to to sort of to do that. So yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting space. But I just yeah, it, I think there's the more you can let architects just get in there and and do beautiful stuff, the better the project is. Um, so we started the conversation off talking about marketing, um, communicating with your clients and your audience. Um, I think for, for you guys is a really unique opportunity and I, I say this to Dave as well. Um, I think insight and access. I think insight and access. The world of architectural construction is so mysterious in a way, I think, to outsiders. Um, I think insight and access is – there's a real, real lack of that and there'd be a real demand for that. Have you thought about 
letting the cameras in to say per se yeah it's it's a balance you i found when we we're starting up in the inner north on those mid-sized nice projects the type of people that you're working for are usually fans of the block and they're really into it uh they want to come down all the time and they're probably more happy to share what's going on and then in the higher end markets you get into in the bigger value projects, those kind of people are naturally more discreet and they want to be more private. They don't necessarily want their their project distributed online and, and you know, everyone in town knowing what, you know, what, what their wine cellar looks like and all that kind of stuff. So navigating that, um, trying to communicate with our future clients and our hopeful and our and our hopeful you know future work with um, respecting the people that we currently work for it's it's a really tough little equation and 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 sort of trawling through there and and you're sort of testing the water sometimes you might post something and a client might go hey I actually didn't I know we didn't talk about it but I actually don't want this on the internet and then you go well wow this is our work this is the only way we get work is this communication tool and then now that's taken away from us that's that's you know that's that's going to be really hard for us. So we're always trying to get that right, and mm. it's and it's about feeling out um, what you think is appropriate. But at the same time, like I said at the start, there's I think there's some companies um, that have been doing well in our industry for the last twenty or thirty years that I can see they're quite quiet. And so there's probably someone still at the top of that business that's a bit more conservative. That's like, no, nah, social media is silly or something like that. Um, and I think they're 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 possibly Wait till I hear about TikTok. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're possibly losing yeah. some market share because mm-hmm. they're just sort of not. They might not have the people in their business that are saying, "No, nah, we need to do this." And but then on the other spectrum, some of the some of the things that um, if I was building my house, some of the builders or tradesmen that seem like it's just complete full time, like from the day I actually don't know how they're getting any work done because the phone is just recording all day. Um, I don't think that's right either. I don't think that sort of, you know, you can go home and watch the block and have someone tell you about every aspect of their and their project and there is a market for that. That and I think, once again, it's that mid, mid-level mid market, which is um, a bit more fun. Um, but we're, what we're trying to do, which is work on the biggest and best projects in town. The biggest, baddest joints <laughs> in downtown. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. I'm going to put that on the hoarding from you. Um there, there is some discretion and, and there is a level of professionalism that everyone's expecting. And, yeah, and it's, you've still got to have fun and be transparent. But um, Does it get tiring? Does, that, does upholding that, I guess you can call it professionalism or whatever, does it – like I, I've only been in the industry in, in this sort of market for not very long and, and sometimes I feel it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot sometimes, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't say the professionalism is ever tiring because as soon as we created it, we did it to be – we only had one goal, which was to be the best, the best at it. And even though it was worth nothing, and even though like at my first job was building a toilet in Dandenong for Doherty's gym in Dandenong. as a 24-hour, 24-hour gym there and it was a toilet block – um, girls and guys, we I drew it on SketchUp, um, and it was under a hundred thousand dollars or something. But it was, it was a tiny job, but it was going to be the best damn gym toilet block in Dandenong of all time, you know. And that and that that was the at the time. Me and Andrew were talking about marketing wise. We were walking past Louis Vuitton and Collins Street and talking about how they were marketing 
So we were doing a toilet block in Downingong and comparing ourselves mm. to Louis Vuitton on, on, on Collins Street. And that, to anyone that knew us back there, it was like, you dreamers, you idiots, you know, what are you even... But, it, but, the, but the vision was always, we're still not there, we're just getting started. So we're, to us, we're at the start of our journey still. We're only just mm. sort of scratching the surface. Um, but once you decide that that's why you're doing it, because it, we could have a way less stress, work less hours, and in construction, construction... The sort of, you know, when I was a labourer in construction, I earned more than my first three or four years at Dome, you know, just labouring, just going home at 3.30, not thinking about it, doing a Saturday. Um, there is, we're so fortunate in this industry that you can be not that necessarily good at anything, but just because of the supply-demand problem in Australia, you can go home and look after your family. So if you're going to take the step of running your own business, dealing with the stress, working the hours... Once you decide that we're going to be the best, everything else just sort of falls into line. So the, that's probably not the bit that gets me tired, that sort of constant search for getting better and being more professional and, and, and bringing people along for the journey and telling them, if you don't want to be here, then go somewhere else because it's easier. Because it sounds nice that this, I always interview people and they say, I want to work in high end. And I say, why? Is it because it just sounds nice? Because once you get here, there's the glamour there's no glamour because the house only looks good for one day and then they move in and then you're on to the next demo. And so that it's not a glamorous occupation. You've just got to love it. You've just got to love that it's hard, love that there's a small amount of people that can do it and, and be really proud of the final product without actually getting to enjoy it yourself. Sort of like working for a first-class airline. It's not that glamorous behind the curtain sorting out everyone's champagne and, make, and get, having them yell at you if you're a second late or if it doesn't taste right. It's probably sounds nice to your friends. I work in first class, but I'm sure at the end of the day they just get back and you know get home and full, put their head on the bed and say that was really tough or that you know that there was no glamour in the job once they get into it. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is bringing people along for the journey, reminding them that high end there's easier money out there, but if you want high end, you've actually got to love it. Class twos, you could do tier four commercial and <laughs> oh, bang yeah. them out. You know, oh, yeah, it's um, yeah. it's uh. And even and that's the thing about our staff. Like people think, um, you know, you, there's because they see, you know, the property or think about what the property is worth. That there's all these high paying salaries in in domestic high end domestic, but there is easier, better money, being an average commercial project manager at a tier three builder, mm. who's say forty years old and hasn't got any other future ambitions. He's going to probably make better money than some of the best construction people in domestic. Um, but you've got to – but what we find is we, we often get a lot of people that have gone to commercial and come back and they just go, oh, I can't handle it. On site it was – They know. value their soul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we've, yeah. Had, we've had gun carpenters that just to get some quick money went and did aluminium fabrication windows in commercial jobs. on union jobs for a year and they come back and they're willing to take half they're just like just it's, just get me back talking kind of like going in the mines <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just get yeah. me back talking because i mean there's something so nice about what we do you know you go onto site and you meet you know the and you would know when you get there because you're always integrating with plumbers and stuff like that a, a nice domestic plumber is often just like the most awesome blokes and all that kind of stuff and then sometimes on a commercial site you know, they're almost like some of them are like can be like a gang, <laughs> you know, like when the, some of the service trades going up on, on the towers and stuff like that, um, like this ruthless aggression that they all have and this sort of infighting and and that's where I started my um, thing was I was a labourer in the city and I just noticed 
everyone's making money and these jobs are still getting built and they everyone hates each other and there's no management out here. It's just everyone from themselves and, and everyone doing the wrong thing and there's still money to be made. Imagine if we all got along and imagine if someone led from the front and brought us all together and gave us a shared vision um, and everyone cared about each other. And imagine what that would look like. Um, and then I think that's what that's the space we're in now. So what is the – so we're just getting started with Dome. What's the macro thesis? Like what what's – What's the white paper? What's the philosophy? Like, where are we headed? What? It's going to be. Speak to the, that. Yeah, it's. I think it was always just let. It's just to just to be the best at what we do, to be known as the best at what we do. But it was never. There's been no end game on it. It's just getting better every day. So every day, every year, I just sent. We just sent Andrew an email this morning because we've both been out saying, you know, this is what I think our goals for the year should be, you know, because we came back yesterday. Um, we'll sit down on that. We'll have a glass of wine. We'll talk about it. And we've always got a three- and a five-year plan, all those kind of things, but we're sort of pretty fluid on that. And it's more about what are we doing this year? How are we going to get better? What do our people want to do? You know, look inside, talk to our guys. What do you want to do? Because if you want to do it, do it here. So we've got a commercial licence, uh, unlimited domestic, Um but the, it's always just been a simple idea for us. And it was that sort of idea that sort of started is we will always be competitive, we'll always be the fastest, we'll do everything we say we're going to do in the top, the best quality in town. So you can apply that to a dentistry fit out if we have to. We haven't, not saying we have before or we're going to. Or you can apply it to a $20 million new build house in Flinders or in Armadale or something like that. So, but... You know, I'd love to, with the commercial side of the business, um, get into things like wineries and golf clubs and, you know, you look between here and the peninsula and we're doing a fair bit of country work now um, up through Kyneton and Macedon Ranges um, through there. There's some beautiful projects going on. I think COVID sort of everyone, you know, with a bit of wealth is thinking that they would like a second or third space yeah. to, to run away to if they have to and... Uh, you know, and we feel like what we're doing can be transferred anywhere because it's just an idea and some principles. Um, and so not having a glass ceiling on that for us as a business or any of our staff and just becoming the builder of choice for our clients and their mates no matter what it is. Like if we need to do your garage in your backyard, we'll do it. Mm. Or if it's a hotel down on the beach, we'll do that too. So, yeah, I couldn't couldn't tell you what the what the end game is, but I just it, we just know when you're sort of – and if you're – walking around our business, I think everyone gets the same feeling as these these guys are like a like a young like a football term would be like a a, a young Essendon team in ninety three or the Hawthorne team in two thousand eight, which is just a bunch of young people who just maybe want to flag a little too early, like, oh God, they won this year. But so what's the next ten years look like? And and that's what I feel like our business is is oh yes, we've bobbed our head up um and, and in this market that we're in now. But none of our people are towards the end of their career. They're all just at the start of their careers. So it'd be interesting to see whatever which way it goes. Any rising stars in the industry? Rising stars in the industry that I've seen. Um, there's a few that you can sort of see from a distance um, that seem to be challenging the norms. Um, but... You've, you're always competing. It, it's who bobs their head out of that mid-tier space, that sort of growth from three to four projects at a time up to 10 to 12 without losing everything that's good about their business. 
So, you know, sort of growing but still being keeping that. Um, so that when people are doing it, you sort of hear murmurs or rumours, you know, from trades that you share and things like that and you hear that they lost a good staff member and now they're not as good as they used to be or a director went some other way. But um, I probably wouldn't name probably wouldn't name anyone uh, as a builder but um, I think it's just great to see subcontractors like say machine operators who who are using all these marketing things who are just you know with it before social media would have been a guy in a machine mm-hmm. and now they're a guy running you know 40 machines and 50 trucks like I'll think about like an Anthony Ring mm-hmm. excavation who's at a Sorrento ripping fella sponsors the football club down there sort of knows everyone and turned from our business has turned excavation around from something that was always difficult, like getting excavator drivers and organising trucks and getting rid of dirt and dealing with tips. Um, and through pretty much social media and just being a good networker, it just says, look, I'll take care of soul for you. And I just look at businesses like that and you just think, you can do that in every trade. Um, a, proper, a person who just wants to look after people. Just be consumer-centric. Yeah, yeah. and But also, but also share, like... Sometimes I feel people strangle themselves with, like we're talking about before, not hiring, not sharing, trying to, like thinking about margin as like their income and then wanting to gobble it all up and they work out hours a week and burn out and then have fights with staff and clients and things like that. Whereas if you're just willing to share and not be greedy, you can it'll surprise you how much you scale up and then in five or ten, year, ten years, that's where the, that's where the prize is. Um, but you've got to... To, to, to have a team and to, to actually scale, you've got to share with everyone. Everyone's got to go home and look after their family. Everyone's got to do well. Everyone's got to be able to holiday, enjoy their lives. And then that's actually an enjoyable environment because you're, you're dealing with like we're now that we've got we're like 12 to 15 jobs at a time, each with an average, we have about 20 people per day on our sites, which sort of that's always a good figure for us that we know the jobs are going about how they should be. It doesn't matter the size, to be honest. Like even a big job... Um, or, or a small job, it, it averages around sort of 10 to 30, so about 20. And out of that 20 people a day by, um, you know, a two, 300-day project, you might have four or 500 people. So we might have four or 500 people across our business or 1,000 people that we're, we're, we're talking to every day and, and enjoying, and they're all doing well because they're all good at their job. They're all getting paid appropriately. The market's willing to pay for, for people to do the right job. So... It's actually an enjoyable experience because there's not, you know, if someone's coming to work, if you're not, if you're not sort of sharing in the in the value up and downstream, um, you find that you're going to end up, you know, sp- working with people that are miserable coming to work. You know, they're not making any money, they're not doing well. There's just one guy doing well at the top who's driving around in a nice car while everyone else is really struggling. That's the for me. That's the that's that's the unsuccessful remedy, which is but we define with us. You know, everyone's. Everyone, even through last year, which would have been the toughest year of most people's lives, professionally or, or at home, um, people still come to work with their smile on their face. By the end of the year, everyone was a bit knackered. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's, that's sort of what we're trying to do. Yeah. Hardest subcontract package to procure? Oh, that is a ripping question. Um, it, it's it's probably changed. It's 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 probably changed throughout. So, my first big package was a joinery package at the North Melbourne Police Station, and I had been at uh, Adco for about I don't know two months, two months into my career, and just got 
Andrew just gave me a set of drawings and a spec and said, um, uh, I need you to do a scope for the joinery package. Mm-hmm. And I'd come out of, learned nothing about joinery at school. So I took it home, read it for uh, overnight, didn't sleep much, came the next day and said to Andrew, watch joinery. <laughs> so on that, I was one day in and I first I had to figure out what the hell because I was looking for it in there and thinking what the hell is this and um, and then and I think sort of learning and then and then I paired up with the joiner for the first decade of my career um, Valecap Joinery who we sort of ended up almost taking in as a working almost solely for us for, for years sitting down with, with John the owner there and figuring out how to price joinery so I learned how to price joinery myself um, and how to measure it and what things cost and things like that and, and understanding the detail. And I think we're doing that with our staff now. So when someone graduates and we get them to do a package, we get them to do a takeoff of everything, so measure everything and scope it up ourselves concurrently with the trade pricing it so they come back so that by the time we've got a quote back we've got a list of 100 questions is this included this 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 have you got this and by the time they get the scope and the scope's 10 pages long on a house um so often the subcontract will come back and go oh i didn't allow for half of that stuff um so i think joinery probably is the one where you really need to understand it the most unless you're going to get four or five prices which i think is always a waste of time um because you just need to work with a couple two of the right people i think and and build some trust um, where I think the hardest things to procure are where the gap between the market, where you've got to fill it with substance, so you've got to fill it with technical nows and substance and understanding, they're the hardest packages. Because you can go to five hydronic contractors and they'll all come back within 10%. But with joinery and, and high-end um, uh, carpentry and things like that, you can get a quote for 50 grand and a quote for 150 grand looking at the same drawing. And, and you can only fill that out with substance. So what's it worth? You have to actually know yourself. What's it worth? So then you can talk to the tradesman. You can talk to the 50 grand guy and make sure that they understand it. And you can talk to the 150 grand girl and go, why, you know, you shouldn't, 150 grand, why are you 150 grand? It's the Blum boxes in the joinery, blah, blah, blah. We usually do them. They cost 100 bucks each or something. Like, you know, why is it 150? And then once they understand that you know it as well as they do, the price often comes back to the to the actual market rate which is we do want to work for these guys their their, their their procurement staff understand what they're talking about which means their site staff probably will so we'll be actually able to make money because it'll be efficient and then you're, you're actually getting the appropriate market value there so if you yeah i think i think high-end finishes where the gap between the top and the bottom is its biggest they're the most difficult to procure yeah do you have any other business aspirations things going on or are we just focused on dome i think when i started very naively, I thought we were going to get into commercial and you were sort of thinking about the commercial builder that we're working for um, and you sort of look at the gross margin and go, God, if we just did one of these jobs a year, you know, we'd both be almost rich and, you know, that wouldn't take that much time because we're managing four jobs ourselves now and what will I do with my spare time? You know, I'll play golf. I remember talking to Andrew like 10 years ago about how much golf we would play um, once we had a business. We've played no golf together. We still haven't even played a game of golf together because we both work so hard. Um, but I think quickly I realised um, that the old four-hour work week book um, and things like that were not going to apply to where we were going. We are so invested in what we do. We have, we have our claws in everything. We're refining it. We're building on it. We love, we love it. So we're there. Um, and we're teaching every day. So I don't see for the next decade that changing. I don't see 
that sort of oh dome's going well now I'll get I'll go out to the golf course and start plotting the next adventure for me it's just going to be honing growing getting better getting better people involved teaching them um, I don't see I don't sort of have these sort of business you know aspirations you know that like 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 you're saying that CEO word to me is dirty because it almost has this sort of I'm not I'm not in there I'm I'm, I'm just like I could go from this company and after six years I'll go work on that company and sit on that board whereas Dome is so personal um, to us uh, that we're just in there every day making it making it better so I think it's going to be more um, we're going to get our kicks out of the types of projects so hopefully you know there'll be interstate work special projects and things like I was talking about like wineries and golf courses or something like that or a hotel or just something that challenges what you're going to do that's unexpected but it's probably going to be client driven it's not going to be an idea that me and Andrew come up with um and so let's go in this direction I think one of our clients will drag us there with them and go well fair enough we'll do that so yeah yeah. what about development so for architectural builders I see um there's a lot of cost involved in managing the um, administration between the client and yourselves like from between the architect and yourselves whether it's resolving details or RFIs or do you think that you can pretty much harvest that as net margin if you were doing your own development it's another another trap it's we sort of educate me please oh no look that look that good developers um are out there making a heap of money doing it well um and good on them. The builders we've seen. I've seen so many builders that are that are good builders, and then they sort of dip their toe in the water in development. And they often, I think, it often stems from going, "Oh, I don't want the issues that clients and architects bring up. I just want to work for myself," which I think is almost saying, "I just want it to be easier." Um, and and then suddenly, you know, you go into a couple of developments, and no one else is paying the bills. You're now paying the bills. And then this good construction business that was, you know, servicing other people were paying the bills, servicing itself, making an okay margin, growing, then gets hijacked by I'm now investing and putting all my time into this. And then if a tradesman makes a mistake or they charge you an extra or something, suddenly it's personal. So it's personal. It's coming out of my my bank account. And and then that job can start getting favoured over others. And we just find I just find there's a distraction there. So I think for us in development, once again, I think it'll be client-led. It'll be um, if someone wants to go on a joint venture with us or something and, you know, that they, they'd like us to have a stake in it, we, we'll do something like that. But we haven't got these grand development plans because I just look at businesses like Multiplex and just look at them in the city just with tower crane after tower crane. Their jobs always look the best. The the cladding, the the... The cladding, the window, is they're always, you know, four or five levels below the structure, which means they've procured everything straight from the start. It's just like a system. You can just see it. And they've got all the great clients like CBAS and all those sort of things, and it just looks like a machine that will never end. Um, and I don't sort of know the int- intricacies of, of their numbers and things like that, but I don't see – then I look at someone like Grocon who, you know, went from the business that the, the father set up of this great builder – sons and everyone turns it into a development business and now they're broke you know that that business if they just stayed as a builder would have been like multis you know it'd be the opposite now i assume and then so i I look up to businesses like multis and stuff like that where you just go they've got a simple philosophy a simple idea and it's just there's enough work in our industry for them to repeat it throughout melbourne sydney and things like that and i think that'll be us i think it'll just be we've 
will be high-end domestic, single-dwelling, beautiful homes um, until that runs out. And from what we can see, um, it's, it's not running out. There's sort of more and more people moving down here and, and stuff like that. So some key principles here is uh, are focus on what you're good at. Don't try doing DNC because because architects are great at doing what they're good at. Being honest and saying architects aren't great project managers and, and understanding where the weaknesses of, of uh, your other stakeholders are. Not having ambitions in developments because that's going to distract us from what we do best. And executing on those philosophies, on those ideas to the highest degree and becoming that multiplex. That's sort of what I'm hearing. Yeah, and, and I think um, sharing, sharing with your people. Mm. Um, investing. Yeah, investing, um, giving people ownership, responsibility, um, trust, trusting, mm. trusting people to, um, to share your vision with you and come with you um, and then enjoying it. Just like it's if we have so many subbies that drop what they're doing and come to our sites because they like our site managers. Because you know mm. Roscoe gave him a call and said, "Hey mate, how you going?" And he's yeah. like, "Oh shit, I want to go to Roscoe. You know, let's go. Let's go, let's just go there because I want to see him. You know, so drop what we're doing and head out there and and um, and the word travels fast, like you said. Like you heard whatever about our business or whoever's business. It's it's a big industry, but it's a small industry. You oh, know, very small. Um, you know, people yeah. know who's paying the bills and and who's good to work for and and all those kind of things. So and you've got you've also got to trust that it's bloody hard and and there's nothing harder than at the start. Um, and if, but if you believe that you're, um, you've got a good idea and that your principles are the right ones and you're, and you're really keen to, to service your clients and, and look after your, your suppliers and, and things like that, if it's an idea that's true and that will work, just stick at it and, and don't give up because you're making bugger money and your mates are earning twice what you are at some bigger company or something like that. Um, but at the same time, like you said, owning a business is not for everyone. Um, dealing with the stress and taking it home and and if you're happy in what you're doing as a, if you're working for someone else um, and they're and they're looking after you and, and this industry everyone should be getting looked after because the the, the chips are in our the chips are in our favor mm. in regards to the supply and demand problem with trade skills and stuff in in this country then sort of have that loyalty both ways and, and be and, and if you've got any ambitions tell your boss tell your mm. boss what your ambitions are I told when I was a laborer I told, my um, boss that I wanted to be a site manager and I said I'm doing business um, business management I'm thinking about going to construction management I want to be a site manager and he said no you're a labourer you'll always be a labourer like that was that was my pigeonhole you know mm. I was going to jackhammer overpoured concrete columns for the rest of my life and uh, and so I quit the next day because I was like no I'm going to uni like this is this is not my this is not my forever thing but people are always just happy to pigeonhole but the right people the right bosses will listen to you and say we'll do it here you know, if we, we've got carpenters that want to be project managers, great, do it here, jump in the office. If we've got a CA that wants to be a carpenter, do it here, great, go to, go to, go to, go to trade school and be a carpenter. Um, so I think if you're, if you're not trying to run a business, if you're trying to have a career for someone else, share that. Don't take it home and tell your wife or your husband, oh, this is what I'd really have to do, but I can't tell anyone. Tell, tell the person you're working for, and if they're the right person, they'll, they'll garner the talent and, and bring it through their own business. Yeah, I think I think if you're working for someone, I think any decent manager or boss will greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate that immensely valuable data point of here's how I'm feeling good or not good about working here or here are my aspirations. I think in terms of 
I think if if people who work for employers recognize that HR, in my opinion, is the problem to solve, then any data that you give to your boss is is gold. So just speak up. Especially here. Like I, I feel like you hear about other industries and, and stuff where you know the talent's just flying through the window, and you could, you've got like you'll have an in, you'll have a position available, and thirty people will apply for it. Like you watch some American movies and some like those investment banking businesses, and then you know even in even in like say fashion where my wife worked, um, they had it, they all decided as interns, so they all worked for free for like six months. I don't know anyone working for free <laughs> in construction. Um, you know apprentices are paid well, labor you know stuff like that. So I think once you've realised that. Um, we have a, a finite amount of talented people um, and people who really want to get somewhere with what they're doing uh, in construction. Yeah, you're right. Any 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 employer is they're looking for someone with a thirst for any form of responsibility. And in, and in construction, we're lucky enough that every job needs to be done. Floors need to be swept. Counts need to be processed. Mm-hmm. You know, all the, top to bottom, you, you want someone who's going to share your vision no matter the job role they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then I agree with you. Just having having someone come to you and say, uh, you know, they might be a bit scared at first and say, oh, actually, I want to go into a completely different division in the business. It might be new business. They might want to become, you know, help you with tenders or something. Mm-hmm. And they're on the tools. You go, bloody oath. Like, how good's that? How good's it going to be getting a carpenter to help me with tenders? So, yeah. yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, not necessarily. I honestly um, came here. Just with a pretty open mind, just to have a chat with you. Similar thing, I, I see, saw you starting something that I think is a great idea. I think there is um, not enough discussion in the, in the industry. I hope that there is going to be more um, people doing what you're doing and talking to tradesmen off and a lot about mental health and that kind of stuff as well. I'd love to see um, people using the platform to – like I'd, lo- I'd love to go to a site – and instead of hearing Triple M blaring, like, for the fourth time today, the Foo Fighters song, I'd love to hear on the background a conversation with two people in construction talking about how tough it was last year, you know, during COVID yeah. and how they, how they dealt with the work responsibilities, the family responsibilities, mm. and having, because having, we're so male-dominated, but having the industry to start to talk to each other and start to share, share ideas, opinions, help each other grow. If you see another business that's, you know, starting up, give them a job. You know, see if they can turn one empl- one employee into two, mm. and then two into four, and and then you know you create like a community in construction, like there are in some other industries. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, nothing, nothing for me to say. I just thought it'd be good to come out and have a chat with mm. you, and and hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, yeah. watch watch your watch your podcast go. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you mentioned mental health. I think that's a huge, huge, huge thing. Like the only reason I started plot joinery is my parents gave me the opportunity to build a house when I was 19, first year uni, amazing opportunity, helped me line up about a million bucks for the construction work. And then I lost it all through trips and just things happening and the projects just never went through. And then I, you know, I guess you, I, you know, I just really, really wasn't in a great mental state. I wanted to start the plot project management business, wasn't really going anywhere. Went to a C, went to C, and then I always wanted to do, I was 20, man. Like I, I had like, I, but I wanted to do the best projects. I wanted to you know, I, w- I had such high expectations for myself and it was killing me. And this, this psychologist I went to see helped me realise I have to work on things that I'm good at and the things taking small actionable steps towards that future. And after, I think, the third session, I, I started Plot Joinery and that was 15 months ago. So huge. Like, So mental health, I think, is something that definitely needs to be talked about more. Yeah, and we, we 
We, I found towards October, November, December um, last year, I feel like at the start of COVID, everyone's sort of a bit scared, hasn't really affected anyone yet, say March, April. Okay, let's lock down, um, but we think we're going to be okay. And then June, July, round two in Melbourne, it felt very, um, like we're still, it sucked that the rest of Australia was fine and we were we were getting locked down again, but there still felt like a, a sense of, we're going to get through this, and especially in construction, we're lucky we get to go to work. We're essential yeah. workers. But then the sort of five per site logistical nightmare, um, we were doing split shifts um, to try and get everyone to work. So we, we managed to not um, lo- uh, get rid of any staff, not lose any staff through COVID. We didn't we didn't apply for JobKeeper or anything. We just did it, you know, off, off through just hard work um, and, and trying to figure out the logistics and keep all of our trades busy and keep our jobs going and ensure our clients everything was going to work. Taking on that burden as uh, of we've got a we've got, our industry is the one that's going to push through. We were very very fortunate to do it, but it came at a, a huge cost of no one got to do what they wanted on the weekends. No one um, people at home who didn't have a job they were stressed, but going to work during that time was a super stressful time. Um, and no one had their release on their weekends, and they had their own family pressures, and everyone had knew someone who wasn't working had lost their job. And I found by about October onwards. We could see, you could see in our guys, you could see in the contractors that it was almost like they could see the finish line in December, but it was still two months away and we really needed a break now. And everyone got through, but for the last couple of months, speaking to our staff and, and some other people, I just found like people were really struggling and they no one had the time to talk about it because now that yeah. COVID was over, you know, in brackets um, for work, all the clients now wanted anything twice as fast before Christmas and everyone just pushed through and worked stupid hours. And, and we just said to people, get to the break, take refresh, and then next year let's have a really good chat about what, what you want to do, what's it taught you, what, what have you changed any your principles, your, your own personal ones? Do you now – a lot of guys came out of it and want to spend more time with their families. And they said to us, we want to look at our hours. Um, can we start a bit earlier? Um, we don't work weekends at all because we consider that family time. Um, so we're already just Monday to Friday, so we haven't got a huge amount of play on the hours and things like that. But um, travel to sites, can we put can we can we get people working closer to home so they're not in the traffic, so they get uh. to spend time with their kids after school? But it's got to start with a conversation. And um, as business owners, it's really got to be on business owners to start it because it's it's quite hard and scary to 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 talk to your boss about that kind of stuff. But you sort of want to empower people within your, within your organisation and, and even other people to just start a conversation about how you're feeling um, because we find that once you start it and people are happier, even if you're just a ruthless businessman, you're getting, you get the outcome. Yeah. The outcome is better, better business, um, getting more out of stuff. So even if you're just a ruthless animal who just cares about money, it's still a good investment to talk about people about mental health. But if you're just a good person... It's just starting the conversation with how are you um, with everyone you see at a time like this in our yeah. industry, I think is a good one. And, and, and yeah, and hopefully there's more conversations and public conversations around it. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Like, like you said, even if you, all you cared about was making money for your organization, you need to look at value in a different way. It's not just the, the top line revenue or the bottom line dollars. Um, you can create value in so many other ways to make a more sustainable um, long-term profitable business yeah well you got you've got all these guys out there you guys and girls out there um on sites and you know you're like i said you're talking to other trades on other sites 
Um, if you're talking about positive experiences with with people and organisations, that word just goes around. If you're talking about negative ones, um, it's the same thing. It goes around twice as fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's just going to become more and more important. We're in a dinosaur industry run by dinosaurs, and it's hopefully some more progressive thinking is going to um, bring this to the fore because it just seems like money and construction has taken care of everything. It's got everyone to this point. Um, but times like now, I think people realise that money is such a small portion of what yeah. makes you happy, mm. um, and we're going to have to bring the bottom up on on our culture and 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 our mental health and all those kind of things, and even our physical health. What are the guys eating? You know, when you get to site and there's five monster cans and and you know and 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 two Macca's bags, and then you find out that something's not right in some other part of their life or something like that, and you just think, God. You're not there to preach to them, but you thought, I wonder how much some diet and exercise and sleep and 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 a chat about your mental. I wonder how much that would fix that that mm. that short little fix. But yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, that's it for me. Nothing else from you? No, no. Just just all the best with yeah. this. All the best with this. Uh, hopefully, we run into each other with uh, with plot and dome as well. Um, but yeah, it'd be great to see something like this take off. And and like I said, just see, see some more public conversations yeah. in our industry. And um, you're going to get me at least one more guest. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. I'm sure I could. Uh, sure, I can tease someone. Up. The one thing about um, construction is there's lots of type A's and who love to hear the sound of their own voice. So um, mm. I'm sure we could uh, we could get a couple of people over that I think you'd find really interesting. No worries. Thank you. Awesome.